The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media at the China Current and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you. When Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison visited the Doherty Institute in Melbourne last week, it was as much to acknowledge its laboratory, the first outside China to isolate the COVID-19 virus, as it was to speak to Sharon Lewin's team that are leading important work on a vaccine. Professor Lewin is the founding director of the Doherty. She sounded the warning of a next global health emergency on an episode of the China Current last year, and now I wanted to speak to her about this outbreak and about the Doherty's progress in science, but also science with compassion. I've interviewed Professor Lewin around the world, but this is the first time for me to do so over FaceTime, a sign of the extraordinary settings that this outbreak represents and the urgency to communicate with the key actors in its response. Sharon Lewin, you are the head of the Doherty Institute, which is leading some of the very important global work towards a vaccine for COVID-19. My first question is, do we actually need a vaccine? I'm pretty sure we need a vaccine. At the moment, what the world is doing is using public health measures of quarantine and isolation and rapid detection. These are all very important. Also, using travel bans and other interventions that are less well proven, but perhaps are buying us some time. But to really、um, have an impact on an infectious disease,、um, you need a vaccine, which will give people. Protection, even partial protection, would make a big difference. I think the big concern with COVID nineteen, it certainly is a severe illness.、Um, it doesn't have the mortality, of course, of SARS at ten percent, and the mortality is more in the range of one to two percent. But everyone is at risk, and so therefore, if you had a vaccine, you could dramatically reduce the number of people that would be infected. You say that we need a vaccine. Does that necessarily mean that you think? That this is going to become endemic, like the seasonal flu. I think, from what we've seen over the last twenty-four to forty-eight hours, with increasing numbers of infections in multiple parts of the world—Iran, Italy, Korea, Japan—and、um, most worryingly, if we see similar levels of notification in countries that have far weaker health system, public health systems. I think it's almost certain we're going to、um, have COVID nineteen around for a while.、Um, I think certainly containment has been working. Numbers of new cases in China reducing. In Australia, for example, we had fifteen cases the first diagnosed on January the twenty fourth, and then not much for the last three weeks until these new cases from the Princess Diamond cruise ship. Um, and so the numbers are really being very small.、Um, and but now and and, and so、uh, you know containment in China, country like China can do it. Not many countries can do that at that scale. So I think we will be seeing living with COVID nineteen after a while, unfortunately. Let's look at that timeline. You mentioned January twenty fourth. That's particularly important because the Doty Institute and the laboratory there. Uh, jumped into、uh, the news because it was the very first in the world to isolate the virus. How did that happen, and where were you? Well, January twenty fourth, 
Friday evening, actually, before what was to be a long weekend in Australia for Australia Day, which is January 26th, but it was a public holiday on the Monday. Um, the first potential diagnosis of COVID-19 um, of a patient that was in uh, Melbourne. And uh, the sample came to the Doherty Institute because we are an institute that focuses on research, education and public health, all related to infectious diseases and immunology. So we have within the Institute a public health reference lab to make diagnoses of exotic infections, particularly viruses. And in the early days of, um, of diagnoses of coronavirus, you need actually special and new tools to make the diagnosis. So not every lab can do it. Now, of course, many, many labs are diagnosing um, COVID-19, which they, which of course is part of the public health response. But at the time, on January, Friday, January 24th, um, there was really very few tests. There were no test kits and there were very few tests around. So the sample came to us because of our expertise having played a very big important role in SARS, developing diagnostics for SARS 17 years ago. So the first test, which was a test to look at the genetic um, material of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, a, what we call a PCR test, uh, which is a common, common way that we diagnose virus infections. We're looking for the genetic material of the virus. That came up positive. And that was the first diagnosis that our team, led by Mike Catton and Julian Druce, repeated the test, used, used several different approaches to be absolutely sure. Once the test was confirmed as positive on the Friday evening, they quickly put um, a specimen onto some cells to see if they could grow the virus in the lab. And um, our team are really expert at that. It's sort of old-fashioned virology. We don't commonly grow viruses because we usually just look for the genetic material. But growing the virus is extremely helpful for a whole range of other reasons. And at the time, no one had access to the virus. They had access to the genetic code. The Chinese had lodged that quite quickly, but the Chinese had not shared the virus. I don't know why, but it hadn't been shared. And having the virus is really important to check your diagnostic tests to develop antivirals. You need the virus itself and to um, develop a vaccine and you need an animal model and therefore need the virus. So um, Julian and Mike um, quickly uh, threw this specimen on top of um, some special monkey kidney cells to see if the virus would grow. And um, over the next 48 hours, um, they had clear evidence the virus was growing because what you see down the microscope is um, the virus starts killing off cells. So the cells go from healthy and alive to dead over a 48, 72-hour period. And um, at, and they were extremely excited about this because they had already been on many teleconferences with the WHO and similar laboratories around the world and everyone was saying no, that no one had access to the virus. So they knew how important this was for public health labs. They knew how important this was for the development of drugs and vaccines. And so they made a decision um, to rapidly share it and announce it publicly. We would normally, um, most science we like to put into the um, peer-reviewed literature, but this was a very different setting. It was a public health, it was this is really about public health good. Now, at the time, I was sitting in a very remote part of Chile. It was a summer vacation period in Australia. 
and I was in the Atacama Desert in Chile um, talking intermittently to Mike and other members of our team. Um, and uh, But the decision was made um, by Mike. Actually, he was acting director of the Institute and it was a very um, spontaneous, but in retrospect, a really great thing to do. It was a great thing. Now we, here we are in... Um, mid-February, there are many groups around the world that have now isolated the virus. This is At the time, we thought it was tricky, but actually it's not that tricky to do. But days really matter in that early phase. Um, you need the virus to check your diagnostic tools. And so it was a great thing that Mike and Julian did, and I was very sorry to miss out on all of the, um, all of the excitement that was happening back here in Melbourne. But in effect, the achievement was twofold. One, they were the first to be able to create a viral isolate, which had not been done outside of mainland China. And secondly, they were able to unlock that gateway and to share it with WHO and also with the world. Is that what Tedros and other people have been talking about in terms of global solidarity, that it's not just a feeling, but a spirit that sets out an intent, especially in the field of science? really important you know science relies science rely and public health relies on um, collaboration uh, and interconnectedness but science has also got all this underlying competition you get enormous benefits um professional and potentially commercial by being the first to do something in science but in this setting um the imperative is is a little different so you put um, that course, aside and went for yeah, the public yeah. good option. I don't think, yeah, to have um, uh, kept the virus uh, and worked on it for a few more weeks um, would not have been good. I think, um, you know, um, yeah, it would not have been a good thing to do. And I think um, the, what Mike's decision was a very good one. And um, we, of course, are now beavering away working on the virus anyway. Um, but his decision was a very good one. Now, um, other groups are doing that um, very effectively in this outbreak, quite different to what we've seen previously. Many of the um, top journals are making all of their papers on coronavirus open access. That might not sound a big deal, but it's really important to be able to see the latest literature and not have to pay for it. Um, many top journals are asking that um, people submit their papers on um, a... Uh, on something called BioArchives, an open access um, platform that allows you to see the work before it's peer reviewed. That's help, that, 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 that's really great, except that it's, um, you know, peer review is really important and some some great things have gone on BioArchive, a few crazy things have gone on BioArchive as well. But um, it means that it's all out there should people want to see it. And, of course, it will still go through the peer review process. So, yeah, sharing, collaboration, cooperation, um, uh, the, thinking about the greater good, um, these are all things that um, all of us need to be constantly reminding ourselves of in this current outbreak. We need to talk about this vaccine that the Doty Lab is also leading important work and understanding on. Just break it down for us. Where are we at in terms of creating that vaccine? And what do we know about its possibilities so far? Well, when developing a vaccine, um, the idea is to give a piece of the virus in some form to someone who's not infected. Um, that vaccine tricks the immune system to make an antibody or an immune response. Um, it doesn't make them sick. 
and therefore they're armed if they ever get exposed to the real virus. And so um, many vaccines, and we all have vaccines in our daily lives as kids and as adults, um, many vaccines use common platforms of how to trick your immune system to making an immune response. And over the last five years, um, particularly as a result of the Ebola outbreak in 2014, where um, we did 11,000 people die, there was no vaccine. There were a few vaccines that had been sitting on the shelf in some companies, but never developed. There was a global effort to accelerate or um, and strengthen these vaccine, what we call platforms, so vaccine strategies that um, look really good and could be rapidly pivoted to a new virus. And um, a lot of that money has gone to, um, that, that, a lot of that investment comes from a group called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. And they've been funding a number of groups with interesting vaccine platforms. And three of those groups um, are now charged with pivoting those platforms <coughs> to for the coronavirus and at the same time there are many other companies around the world many other academic groups around the world that have a favorite way of making a vaccine and then trying to adapt it now <coughs> to the coronavirus so in australia um, we have one group in the university of queensland who have a really interesting technology it's led by a virologist paul young um, who has a CEPI grant um, uh, funded quite significantly on an approach for a vaccine. They call it a clamped protein approach. Basically, it's a bit of the, a bit of the virus that's um, put in a special confirmation so that it gives a, a better immune response. And I know that Paul and his team are now rapidly converting that platform to use coronavirus sequences. In the Doherty, um, we our focus um, has been on platforms that are not as well developed as what is being funded at the moment by SEPI, but some really interesting um, ideas that look very good in animal models. But we're also really keen to develop the tools that you need to assess vaccines. And so a few tools that you need, you need to be able to assess the type of antibodies that the vaccine makes. Are they good antibodies? Are they bad antibodies? You need to be able to have an animal model that you can test whether the vaccine works to prevent infection, as well as you need some vaccine candidates. Um, and so our approach is on developing good antibody assays, hopefully developing an animal model, and then converting some of the platforms that our immunologists have developed for other viruses to for the coronavirus. You use the word trick a couple of times in creating a vaccine, your own important work on establishing a cure for AIDS also looks at tricking as well as a technique. And people have been talking about a vaccine, but in the immediate short term, or even just now, there needs to be the employment of existing therapies to save lives currently in Wuhan and in other areas far beyond that. Um, what do you say with the other hat that you have on over there in terms of the viability of antiretroviral therapies and other therapies that you've been hearing about in terms of addressing that stopgap before we get to a vaccine? Yeah, um, there's a lot of discussion and focus on the benefit of a vaccine because a vaccine protects uninfected people from becoming infected. 
but we still need treatments for people that are infected. At the moment, if you come into a hospital with um, COVID-19, there are no treatments available, no, no approved treatments available for people who will have supportive treatment, oxygen, antibiotics if you have another infection, um, intensive care support if needed, but there's nothing that targets the actual virus. And so we certainly need therapeutics uh, for COVID-19. Um, and there are a few interesting lead compounds that were identified as having activity against SARS and the other important coronavirus that um, appeared in 2012, MERS or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And there's a few interesting antiviral drugs. Um, the world has invested heavily in antiviral drugs. Initially, of course, um, a whole range of technologies that came about in developing antivirals for HIV that were then used to develop antivirals for hepatitis C and then with Ebola, a lot of effort to find antivirals. And many of these drugs, many of these HIV, hepatitis C, Ebola, coronaviruses are all different family of viruses, but they actually share some properties. They're all RNA viruses. So they use some, so some of these drugs work for multiple viruses. Um, and so there's one drug of high interest called remdesivir that was developed by Gilead. Um, that was developed to work for Ebola, um, but also has activity against SARS and MERS, and most recently has been shown to have effect, at least in the test tube, against um, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Um, interestingly, one of the HIV drugs also has activity against this family of coronaviruses. Um, not Quite surprisingly, we don't quite understand why. I'm not quite as potent as remdesivir, at least in the test tube models. And um, the world has become pretty expert at um, developing antiviral drugs using different approaches. One approach is you can take a drug library and screen thousands of drugs in a test tube model and see if it blocks the virus um, replicating. And the other approach is to do a very fancy 3D image of the virus and use what we call rational drug design. You can actually identify pockets of the virus that your drug could wedge into and block it. And all of those very cool approaches were developed for HIV and now being used in modern drug design. So therapeutic um, uh, drug development's really important here. I just have one reservation about antivirals. Um, and that is that this coronavirus um, appears to make people sick over a long period of time. They often have a mild illness in the first week and then can get much sicker in the second and third weeks. And um, sometimes, um, and this has been shown in SARS, that sometimes you get sick from a virus because your immune response is working too hard to try and clear it out. So um, we may need to have therapeutics that not only tackle how much the virus is dividing, but also calm down the immune system so it doesn't create lung damage. And I think both areas will need further work. I know we're almost out of time, so I just want to squeeze in two quick questions. One of them is, of course, public health and science is first and foremost also about people to the communities and to the families of people who are infected at present. Can you provide them any evidence-based hope, given what you said? Well, I feel the same about, um, about how people must feel when they're put in quarantine, when they're in isolation in hospitals. Um, 
that is a very traumatic experience. And I know that people experience this day-to-day in hospitals when they're isolated for bacterial infections, for example. But here you have the isolation, quarantine, and fear about catching um, coronavirus, which is um, really concerning. So I definitely feel for, um, for, for, for people in both quarantine and isolation. Um, and I think we are learning much, much, much more about the virus so we can understand even better um, how long quarantine is necessary. And I hope we can do a better job of explaining why quarantine is necessary. And um, But that doesn't mean that we should be stigmatising or, um, or associating coronavirus with any ethnic group or any population. This is a infectious disease um, and uh, we just need to use rational and always compassionate approaches to and lastly it just so happens that you have an event for the Doherty Institute and you also have a personal event which is the celebration of your husband's birthday in the next couple of days and on both of them professionally and personally you've chosen to go and celebrate and or market at a Chinese restaurant um is that coincidental Absolutely not. No, and unfortunately in Australia, where we have no human-to-human transmission at the moment of coronavirus, we're seeing Chinese restaurants um, empty and Chinese businesses um, not frequented, which is terrible. Um, it's absolutely not needed on a public health front, and we need to support our Chinese community. So on Wednesday night, um, all the scientists at the Doherty are going to head down to Chinatown and uh, for an event called Scientists Support Chinatown um, and have a fantastic Chinese meal there. And then next week, um, my husband's 60th birthday, um, we're going to hold in a Chinese restaurant as well. So congratulations to him. And on behalf of the world, in gratitude, not only for the science, but also linking that science, as you said, through compassion to people to steer away from the stigma and to create fantastic opportunities and life-saving treatments and vaccines for all. Sharon Lewin, thank you very much. Thank you, James.